my team for you. But then my team came back and they won. Meaning that my good buddy does a great job running this stuff up here on this screen, which is why he's not up here next to me or I would have made him. My good buddy, Matthew Pack, if you want to look and see, there's an Alabama Crimson Tide shirt on back there in the back. Yeah, baby. I don't care how good your boudin sausage is, your team got whipped. Now, I'm telling you that, probably if I'm being honest, I'm telling you that for a couple of reasons. I just got to be honest with myself, because I want you to know, okay? I mean, I just need you to know that, right? But I'm also telling you because last night after the game, a few seconds left, I get a text on my phone that congratulates me. Good job, man. Glad for you. It's from Matthew. And I thought about the way that one of Alabama's players, not of his own intent, I don't believe, he was just unable to restrain his rugged manliness. And he accidentally hurt the star quarterback of Matthew's team because he's a little bit fragile. Okay? <laughs> And I thought that it would really break my heart if I had to wear LSU stuff because of something like that. Like the guy who was going to carry us to the win is no longer in the game. I would hate that. And I, in an instant, softened up and sent Matthew back a text and said, man, it really is okay. Like, our guy probably should have had a penalty and, and your guy didn't get to play. It's really all right if you don't want to wear the Alabama shirt today. And he said, no, man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a man of my word. And so I made sure it was wrinkle-free. It was on a hanger waiting for him when he got here. All right? <laughs> but in that brief moment, in those five seconds, I was in a position to make him squirm. Now, he's, he's bigger than me. He lifts heavy things often. All right? So he probably could have gotten out of it. But if he wanted to do what was right, I had the authority in that sense to make him do it. I had the the, the, the ability, the place to say, you've got to do this. And yet, not even thinking about this morning, I said, hey, man, you don't, you don't have to do that. That's what mercy's like. Except it's about much bigger than which colors you wear on your body. It's not about you having come and, and proposed something that might put you in a bad spot. It's, it's about much more than that. It's about you having chosen over and over and over and over again to do much more than simply enter yourself into a little bit of a quagmire. It's about you rebelling with your whole heart against the Jesus that died to save you. And the Father God of heaven, the Father of Jesus, saying to you, I have every right, I would be completely just right now to end you, to squash you, to punish you. I would not be unjust if I did that. I have every right, but listen, if you're trusting in my son, you can count that you get new mercies every single morning. Every single morning, the scripture says, there's a place in us that has a need to not receive what we've earned for ourselves, and there's a God who's going, already laid it out there for you next to the bedside. Here's your mercy. We've got a God who has a heartbeat to over and over and over again offer mercy. And so as we're reading the, the story of Jonah, right, it, it may be a little different than what you experienced growing up if you've heard the story or been to VBS and painted a well on a sheet of paper and made it move with a popsicle stick. There's more going on. Right? So far we've 
seen that Jonah has rebelled against God. He's running the opposite direction of God's purpose for his life. God has said, go and do this and be about this message to these people, the Ninevites. And Jonah has not just said, no, I won't go. He said, I'm going to get as far away in the opposite direction from that as possible. I'm not just going to run from your purpose, it tells us in the first three verses of the book. I'm going to run from you. I'm going to run from your presence. He's done that. He's hidden in a ship. And if you remember from last week, we saw Jonah's propensity that looks a lot like ours, if we're honest, to be restful in rebellion, that he's rebelling against God and God has hurled a great storm on the sea and the storm is about to kill all these crew members on the boat and Jonah's on the boat and he's just asleep at peace in his rebellion. And what's ironic is that you see the guy who claims to fear the Lord, Jonah, is restful in his rebellion, while the crew of this ship, which are most likely polytheistic, which means they're not worshipers of the God who's the hero of our Bibles, they're worshipers of multiple gods. Jonah, God's prophet, is restful in his rebellion. These crew members show a great sense of the fear of God that we wish Jonah would have. And they're crying out to God and offering prayers making sacrifices. They're doing all they can to to say, please, we trust that you have the the power to annihilate us. Please don't do that. And it ends with them having to throw Jonah over into the sea. That was incredibly tempestuous. I use that word because the scripture does. I don't say it a lot, but I think it's a big word for a big reason. So picture in your mind, if we were watching this on a screen, the life of Jonah, what you just saw last week ended with a pitch black storm scene and lightning cracking off and Jonah being thrown over and he hits the water and sinks down into the water and the little bit of glimmer of light that he could see in this dark moment through the water, it just fades and fades away. And then imagine that the titles roll and the movie's over and you get up and you go home. That's where we ended last week. And if Jonah were to be handed what he deserved, I used to to hate it as a kid when I would talk about, well, that's not fair. My parents would say, oh, you don't want it to be fair. Because if it were fair, I hated that. But man, I say it all the time now. (laughs) If Jonah was to get what was fair, that's exactly what would happen. The story would be over. Done for him. And yet instead, we're going to see God yet again be merciful to Jonah in that his life doesn't end right there, right then. We're going to see God yet again be merciful towards the Ninevites because he's going to spare the prophet that's going to bring them the message. See what happens next. Jonah's in the water. It says this, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now what I see here when I look at this is something we talked about last week. I see it really clearly jumping off the page at me. I see another display of the sovereignty of God. We talked about this last week. The sovereignty of God, I believe, is his nature to always act with perfect uh, wisdom, knowledge, Ability, authority, and motivation in all things. That he's always doing exactly what he should be doing. And he knows what he should be doing. And he can do what he needs to be doing. Because he's got the power and the authority. And in all of that stuff that he's always doing perfectly and bringing about perfectly, he's always doing it with the right motivation. He's always doing it with the right heart. Can you imagine that? 
hard for me to fathom myself even thinking about living that way. And that's who God just is out of his character. I see it sovereignty because in verse 17 we're told that the Lord appointed a great fish. He appointed it. Now we don't talk about appointing things very often. Usually I'm guessing for you it's like me. When I think about someone being appointed, I'm thinking about an official who's been appointed by uh, the process of votes. Right? So we voted and, and through that process we are appointing them as our official. Or maybe an authority has the right to put certain people into different offices and they appoint this person or that person. They appoint them to fill the office. We don't won't really use the word much outside of that, but let me just give this to you. Have you lately made an appointment to get your oil changed, to get your hair did? I need more on that. I said hair did, right, on purpose. I used the wrong word on purpose. Nobody gave me anything on that. Sorry. My hood came out and nobody appreciated it. Anyhow, have you, have you made an appointment with the doctor, right? Have you set a date? To meet with a friend, what you just did when you made that call or accepted that email and you said yes to that or you reached out and said, can we? And they said yes is you brought something that wasn't going to happen into existence. You didn't have a trip to the doctor. You could have gone, but he wasn't going to see you. That did not exist, but you made an appointment. And here's God, sovereign in all things, appointing Something so rare, so bizarre to us in our minds. He's appointing that Jonah, who is drifting downward and downward in the sea that is raging, he appoints that this big, huge fish would come and swallow Jonah. And Jonah would be in the body of this great big fish. Now let me ask you, what kind of fish was it? Anybody? Man, I'm surprised. Somebody said, well, I think. I thought I heard it, right? Oftentimes the answer there, even for me, has been whale. And it very well may have been a whale, okay? But, but it also may not have been a whale. Nowhere in the Bible has it ever said that it's a whale, by the way. It's crazy to me. The first time I realized that, I was like, I've been lied to my whole life, right? Like, what else did my Sunday school teachers lie to me about, right? doesn't say that it's a whale. We probably think of a whale because our idea and our picture of what Jonah experienced is probably less formed by Scripture and more formed by a picture that Disney gave us, right? Remember the story of Pinocchio, right? He gets swallowed up by this great big whale, and he's hanging out in this great tavern. I think we got a picture of that for you. He's, he's hanging out in a place like this where there's plenty of room. You can play a football game in there and be happy about it. Right? There's, there's a lamp. There's Geppetto. He's writing stuff. Listen, Pinocchio is hanging out, writing with uh, Geppetto. He's got all this space. Right? That's, that's not Jonah's reality. <laughs> Jonah's reality is he is in pitch black darkness for three days and three nights. Jonah's reality is, is that he's likely squeezed up in a space that's tighter than what this looks like. <laughs> Probably much tighter. Jonah's reality is that as he's squeezed up in this dark, dank, soggy, nasty-smelling coffin of a place, he's squeezed up there, he's having to remove stuff from his hair that he's hoping is, is fish scale or seaweed. Doesn't know what's on him. It's likely that there might be a stomach acid from a fish that's eating at his skin and it's stinging and it's terrible. His reality isn't pretty. 
And a lot of times we make the mistake, I'm, I'm the world's worst, we make the mistake of seeing something that's not great and kind of minimizing it and moving past it and just going, yeah, it probably wasn't cool. Listen, Jonah didn't just have a little bit of a bad day. This is not just a bad weekend for Jonah. He's not hanging out in a world-class submarine that's made out of fish on the outside. He's squeezed up in a tight place of death. Just as a brief side note, there are a lot of theologians who would want to make this out to be nothing more than, than, a, than a, a symbolic story, a, a parable. Listen, I just want to make sure you hear this part too. They could even be right and it doesn't change the character of God a single bit or what God's wanting to teach us, right? So that could be true, but, but I don't think it is true. I think we want to think that because we go, well, there's no way that there could be a fish big enough to swallow a person. And even if they did, there's no way that they could swallow them and ingest them without the person's body being broken and torn up. There's no way they could survive in there without oxygen. There's no way. And so what we can't understand, we tend to deny. And I would just really quickly say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you got something going on in your life that you believe in that's way more out there, way more bizarre, way more no way that could happen than being stuck in the middle of a fish for three days. You've got the holy God of the universe becoming flesh in the person of his son named Jesus and choosing to gladly, willingly die on a cross, shamed and mocked and naked and bleeding and do all of that with silence when he could have spoken back to his accusers when he could have called down an army of angels. He's done all of this and died for those who would trust in him so that they might be forgiven. And then, three days later, he rose from the grave. The one who was dead was alive. If you've got a problem with a guy in a fish gut, I don't know how you're going to believe in Jesus the Christ. So I believe this really happened, and I want us to understand that his situation was extremely disgusting, vile, and bleak. I want us to understand that, because I think if we don't understand that, then we'll minimize the tension of what Jonah has going on. And I think we'll also miss out on how this gross experience that none of us would ever want to go through was actually a huge kindness, a huge presentation to Jonah from God of mercy. This is God going, you deserve to sink all the way down to the deep and be flatlined done, and yet I have spared you. But that's not how we want to think about mercy, right? That's not how we want to think about God's rescue coming, if we're sinking in the, the sea that's raging, we, we don't want God to come by with a fish. We think God's going to pick us up with like a luxury liner. We're going to sit on the deck after he stills the storm. We're going to watch a favorite movie and eat grilled cheese. It's going to be great. Right? We want God to take us from absolute horrendous circumstances and place us in absolute comfortable circumstances. But what if that's not how God brings mercy into our lives sometimes? First thing I just hope that we can all hear in this room, and, and I would be willing to wager that we, we all probably know this. A lot of us have heard this before, but I just need to ask you not just do you know it, but do you believe it? That running from God is an act of absolute futility. 
that you can run from God's presence and you can run from God's purpose every day, all of your life. But listen to this. We, we might be able to push back against his desires in this moment. We may be able to sin against him and do the thing that we want to do in this moment. We do that. And I don't understand all the intricacies of how it's woven together, but I'm just telling you this. In the big picture, ultimate sense, you can run from God all you want to, but you won't do anything but exhaust yourself. And when we think that we can, we minimize our God and make him small. And no wonder we don't fear him and respect him and be in awe of him and love him. Listen, you can run from God all you want, but you won't be any further away from what he wants from you than when you started. God's sovereignty is always bigger than your straying. Always. Whatever his big picture plan for your life is, whatever God's carrying out, it's coming. And we can see that you're going to either get there in one path or maybe you have to go on a ride in the belly of a fish, but you can't outrun God. You see this as well, that our awareness of God's mercy is magnified when we trust that His mercy often looks messy. Our Awareness of how often God is merciful to us. Our awareness of how often we deserve one thing and yet he's giving us a kindness that's not that thing we deserve. How often that happens in our lives. Our awareness of that will be magnified when we can trust and accept the fact that oftentimes God's mercy in our lives looks much more messy than we would want it to. Maybe God's answer for someone's loneliness is not romance, but it's fellowship with a friend or a church. Maybe God's answer as you wrestle through tension in your faith with him is not to completely immediately resolve all of that tension and just take away any doubt, but it's to teach you and grow you through the process of that tension to trust him even when it doesn't feel good. Maybe God is at work in your life doing things that you can't imagine because the way he's doing them is happening in a way that doesn't fit your mold. We minimize our God and we elevate ourselves above him when we limit his power to our methods. God doesn't do what you do just because you think it's right. He doesn't do what you do. He doesn't mimic you. He does what's best. And oftentimes that kind of mercy in our lives looks messy. Where right now are you looking at life and you can go, man, I'm hating this situation. I'm hating that situation. I don't know how much more I can take of this moment. Please hear me. In no way do I want to be insensitive to that reality. Those moments in life are exhausting and relentlessly difficult. I just want you to hear that even when you're in that moment, if you're still breathing air, then you're living in the mercy of God. He's being merciful to you, sometimes even through the very thing that you would most want him to deliver you from. There's mercy just flowing all through that. And we'll learn to see it and learn to appreciate it and worship the God of mercy if we can accept the fact that his mercy doesn't always come with a pretty bow. Sometimes it comes and it looks So how do we get to this place? How do we get to a place where we can see it and respond to it and appreciate it? I think... The next few verses will maybe give us some help. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Chapter 2 says, Then Jonah 
prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is a prayer that we're about to read of Jonah's. He says this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood, it surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's believing that something's going to happen different than his current reality. It says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Man, you ever been to the river or the lake and get just deep enough to start touching slimy, cold stuff at the bottom and go, Ugh, right? He's going, I was at the roots of the mountains and weeds were entangling themselves around my head. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah is in this dark, burning God and he's praying. Three themes that I see in these verses that are, are, are this, this pattern I want you to see. They all just happen to start with D, the first is distress. You see that Jonah finally reaches his point of distress. Distress is a, a deep, unescapable sense of fear or anguish or doom. It's when I think I'm defeated and there's not a thing that I can do about it or anybody else can do about it. He's reached his point of distress. Listen, when, when you have a fender bender out here on Veterans, that's a bad day. And you're stressed, and you're thinking, how am I going to pay for this? Make my insurance go up. Uh, this is just not good. So-and-so is going to be mad at me. You know, whatever. That is a bad day, and I, I want you to hear that. But distress is when the car has left the surface of the ground that it was driving on, and you're looking through the windshield, and no one in the car has control of the car, and you're looking at what you're about to hit, and you're thinking, I don't know how I would ever live through this. That's distress. I'm dead, and I know it. That's distress. If left to my own abilities in this moment, there's nothing I can do at all, period. Distress. And Jonah says it once and embodies it a couple other times. He said there in verse 1, he said, Out of my distress, I'm calling to you. He says later that, that he felt like he was in the belly of Sheol. This is a way of saying he felt like he was near death and, and processing on to the next place after this life. He said, I'm going there now. I was in the belly of it. Where was he when he's doing all this? He's in the heart of the seas. He's not up on the shore making sandcastles, kicking waves around. He's out there in the way deep. He says, the flood, it surrounded me. I'm driven away from your sight. He goes, God, I don't even feel any chance that you're watching me, that you care about me, that you can see what's happening with me. The waters, they closed in over me. Have you ever been there? You pushed it further than you should have in the pool. Like me, you went swimming in the ocean when there were red flags out and undertow took you for a ride. And you're choking on water and you're going, I don't know how this works out. He says, I was covered up. It was surrounding me. There were weeds wrapped around my head. My life was fainting away. He reached a point of distress. 
listen, I don't want you to walk out of this place today feeling hopeless, feeling heavy as if the whole world is horrible. I don't want you to feel that at all because we live in a world where our God is blessing us left and right. What I do want us to walk out of this place today is with a solid realization of how spiritually distressed we are apart from Christ. Apart from Him. It is apocalyptic, world war, the the world is falling apart in our souls. Apart from Jesus. Jonah's distressed, and so he moves into a place of dependence. See it a couple of different times. He says in verse 1, I called out to the Lord. Verse 7, he says, I remembered the Lord. When he gets distressed, he doesn't scurry himself and try to figure out what he can do. Maybe because he's stuck in a fish gut. (laughs) Despairing places oftentimes help us reach the healthy point of distress. It's not going to do you any good when you're in the car and you're about to hit the thing and and you try to, what are you going to do at that point? It's not going to do any good. The, The prodigal son in the New Testament, a part of the story that we as Americans often don't emphasize. He came home. You know when he came home? When there was a famine. (laughs) He was still eating the slop and the junk, but all of a sudden there's a famine and there's nothing. And he goes, I've got nothing. No chance. Nothing left. When he came home, he reached this point of dependence when he realized he was in a place of distress. And spiritually, you and I, without Jesus, we live in a place of distress. Will that lead us to a place of dependence because when it does then we can understand and appreciate and see god's deliverance right god coming to the rescue he says verse one the lord answered me he says you heard my voice verse six you brought me up from the pit verse seven my prayer came to you, which means that God let him be alive to pray, and it means God received it, right? He's going, hey, God has delivered me. I was sinking in the waters, and he sent this most bizarre way to rescue me and show me mercy. But for Jonah to see that, he had to be in the distressed spot. I was visiting my parents near Birmingham, Alabama a few years ago, and I decided I'd go to a gym. I was trying to get back into working out a little bit. And so I go to this gym I'm not familiar with, and I get in there, and I start lifting weights. And I go, and I get on a weight bench where you're laying on your back, and you're just pushing the weight up a little bit. And, and I get a really small weight. I don't try to do anything big. If you know me, I'm pretty nervous as a cat being in there anyway. And I'm like, I don't want to have any weird moments in here. Right? Like, I don't, I'm just going to keep it safe. I'll just go low weight, and I'll do high reps. I'll go low weight, and I'll push it as many times as I can. Right? And I'll remember it for the rest of my life. I'm laying on my back on that bench, and I'm pushing this thing, and it comes down. I thought, I got three more, and I pushed out one. And I thought, all right, that was really hard. And then I pushed out the, t- the second one. I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make this one. And then that, that stupid, foolish, stubborn, machismo part of the male brain kicked in. And it said, oh, you got three. <laughs> and so I went for three, and three didn't go. I went for three. I made about three inches off my chest. There's a guy, a stranger, a little bit away from me, and he's looking at me kind of in the corner of his eye, and he turns and looks, and he says, Need help with that? Trying to be nice. You know what your boy said? No, man, I'm good. <laughs> nope. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, I'm going to let it sit down on my chest. I'm going to recover for a second. I'm going to blow this thing out, right? I'm going to get up and look at that dude like, What? You thought I needed help with that? 
sit there, I try again, I try again, and eventually I have to look back at the guy, and at this point I think he's feeling, I don't know, it's got to be awkward for him, because he's like, this guy is clearly in trouble. I offered, he clearly won't take it. <laughs> I, I look back at the guy and I go, hey man, yep. <laughs> he comes and immediately just reaches down and picks it up, and I'm good to go. But I had to reach the point of realizing that there was nothing I was going to be able to do about it before I was willing to accept the rescue that this guy could bring into my life. you're going to follow Jesus authentically in a way that actually matters, in a way that actually transforms your soul, in a way that actually leads you to an eternity with him. If you're going to follow him in a sincere faith, you're going to have to come to a point where you go, hey, I realize that I do not have this figured out at all. But it doesn't stop there. If we're going to continue to walk with him, we must not let ourselves begin to think that we've got it figured out. We must continue to live in a place where we cry out to our God because we know that without Him we're distressed and so we're dependent upon Him. And when we do, how often might we more clearly see His merciful deliverance? We serve a God, I believe this with my whole heart, who instinctively loves to rescue those He loves. That when we cry out to God, from sincere faith, He loves to come in and swoop in and rescue those that He loves. It's not for when He could get Him to do it. We don't have to coax Him or talk Him into it. He loves us. It's what He is about. This past week, I was leaving our house. I was just, just had a moment where my schedule had been interrupted by some stuff going on with family, and I'd been at home trying to handle that for a little while, and Therefore, things are mounting up that I've got to get done elsewhere. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to hurry. I've got to leave. And beyond that, our garage door is broken, so I don't go out to my truck the normal way. I have to go out through the back door, unlock the door, lock the door, walk through the sand, get it on my shoes. I'm not a big fan of, right? I've got to go get in the truck, right? And so I'm doing this whole thing, and as I'm walking out the door, my wife's sitting over on the couch, and I'm making my way over there. I said, all right, I love you. And I walked out the door, and as I closed the door behind me, I was getting my keys out. Something in my head went, go tell that woman that you love her. Because you just mumbled you love her about as excitingly as you said, okay, I'll fold the socks. <laughs> you're in a hurry, you're distracted. That didn't sound like love. And my first impulse, I'm just being honest, y'all, my first impulse was like, I've told her 75 million times she's going to be good. She's got it. I'm in a hurry. And then I went, no, open the door. <laughs> so I opened the door, walk all the way back across there, find her, get down in front of her face and look in her eyes. And I said, hey, I love you so much. And she may or may not, depending on how appropriate you think it is, have given me a couple of texts on the door. Okay? And I could see in her eyes that, wait a minute, he just took time that I wasn't expecting him to take, that I didn't ask him to take. He just took time just because it was in his heart and in his mind. He just took time to come back and say that he loves me. Y'all, listen, I, I didn't get a better husband paycheck that week because I did that. <laughs> There was, there was no benefit for me. I didn't get like a, a chance to win a vacation because I made a husband move, okay? I went to my wife because why? I love my wife. I went to my wife because I want to make sure she knows, not just through what I say, but through what I live, that she is absolutely a treasure to me. And I don't get that right all the time. So before you walk out of here, <laughs> don't think I'm tooting my horn. Don't come to me asking for, you know, can you write us a manual on how to do this? I don't, I don't know, okay? 
I get it wrong a lot, but in that moment, I'm loving her. Why? Because I love her. And I'm saying to you that your God doesn't begrudgingly come to your aid. Your God doesn't come to you through gritted teeth, ticked off that he's having to show up to come in and pull you out of this situation you're in. Our God is a God who loves to rescue those that he loves. He loves to show who he is. He loves to show his heart. Jonah's calling out to him from deep despair, and God swoops in and shows mercy to a fish. Some of us may be sitting here today, and you're going, no, not not me. I hear you, and I've heard that my whole life, but right now you're thinking about that one thing that happened last year, and God didn't show up. Where you're thinking about that thing you're going through right now, and you're going, I've been asking forever. Where's he at? Listen, we could talk for hours, and I don't know all the ins and outs of every bit of that answer, but I can just tell you this. That when we sincerely place our our prayers with God, meaning we quit trying to scramble and do it ourselves and then toss him a little bit of a lifeline and go, maybe this will work, so I'll just ask him too, just in case. God is not an option for our hope. God is our only hope. doesn't mean you sit and do nothing lifeless. It means you come to him first and you pour your hope into him and then you let him lead you through life and what else you do know how often do we think god hasn't come through when we've never actually truly brought our hearts to him to ask him we've never truly expressed our dependence maybe it's that you have truly done that and maybe he's coming maybe right now you're experiencing some messy mercy And I'm sorry that it's a dank place to be and it's gross and it doesn't feel good, but that doesn't mean that it's not mercy. God loves to come and rescue us. Now, Jonah in these last three verses is going to contrast for us what it looks like to be a person who doesn't trust that, who doesn't believe that with himself who did. Verse 8, if you want to memorize a verse from Jonah, I'd recommend this one. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We'll jump back in here next week. But And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And we go, whoa, how awesome! He's delivered on the dry land! And it is awesome, but he was carried to the dry land through fish vomit. But I want you to hear today this, that Jonah says, I understand I'm surrounded by the place I was sent to go to is rich, it's steeped in idol worship where the people who participate in idol worship, they don't think that the little statue or the trinket or the whatever the physical tangible thing is, they don't think that that's actually a God. They think that the actual God lives out somewhere in the skies or beyond what they can possibly understand. And they think that God is distant from them and far from them and not particularly inclined to like them very much. And the only way they can turn the hand and the actions of these different gods all over the place is to appease what these gods want by worshiping these little objects in our lives. An idol is anything in our lives that we seek out in order to get what we want most. (laughs) When I go, hey, this is what I really, really want, 
What can get me to that place, to that thing that I want? If I take that answer, that thing that can get me there, that pathway that can get me there, the thing that can bring that feeling, if I take that and I pursue that and place my hope in that instead of in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have an idol. And they're all vain. (laughs) They all disappoint. They all fail. The thing you most want might be acceptance. The idol might be work performance. The thing you most want might be affection. The thing you might seek might be physical relationships that don't honor God. The thing you might most feel good about is is success and recognition. And so you might pour every bit of of, of your time and, and extra spare time and energy into being really good at that hobby. So people will think, man, you can hit that softball country mile in Puerto Rico, right? You might think, hey, listen, I'll be a good parent. I've done so many other things wrong, but I'll be a great parent, and that will make me feel good. And so I'll do anything and everything my kids ever need and want. I'll always only say yes, even if it's not what's best for them, even if it doesn't point them to the Lord. He says if we set our hearts down in front of, in in a place of worship before vain idols, we forsake our experience of, our enjoyment of, we give up on the joy and experience of the love of God that could be in our life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have a moment where you turn your heart towards an idol, God doesn't stop loving you. You just gave up on your enjoyment and experience of it. He says, that's what happens when you trust those things. But he says, listen, instead, I'm going to worship. That's what he's doing. He says, I with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice. Do you notice that Jonah is worshiping and he's also committing to worship in the future? He's, in, he's praying in the belly of a fish. He's talking to God about how great his rescue is and how good he is. And he's also saying, I will praise you, future tense. He's going, now, now we're going to see, by the way, spoiler alert, if you hadn't heard the story of Jonah, he gets it right in this moment. This is one moment when we can look at him and go, okay, man, I want to do that. And then he gets it horribly wrong when it gets time, becomes time to, to live it out, Okay. But in this moment, he's going, I see your mercy in my life. I see that you've rescued me. And what I have to do and say about that is I praise you and I will be a person who lives a life to praise you. Worship flows gladly from those who recognize the radical nature of their rescue. When you look at, I know I'm running from the presence of God and I know I was thrown into a vast, endless, it seems, sea at storm and a fish came and swallowed me i don't go oh well what a neat coincidence i go god rescue me and when we see that we'll be people who worship god gladly because we believe that even when it's uncomfortable god is merciful god is at work god is being kind to us and not giving us what we deserve. As we close out our time this morning, I'm going to do something a little different. I want you to check out the story of a friend of mine who's had this experience where mercy was messaged. I want you to hear their story. Check this video out. My name is Matthew Peck. I'm originally from Louisiana. I've lived in Dublin for the better part of 34 years of my life. I grew up in a church here uh, with my family until I was about 18 when I stopped going to church and left home. I started uh, drug drug use 
when I was about 15, uh, until I was about 27 years old. Um, my thoughts about God were non-existent, uh, but when, pretty much non-existent, but when they were present, it was, you know, um, just shame, you know, because I knew that what I was doing was wrong, but didn't care enough to do anything about it because what I was doing in my life at that point was just easy and I just didn't comprehend or didn't want to comprehend how it affected people in my life like family. All this led to um, me ending up being with the wrong people, being around the wrong people, selling drugs, using drugs, and it ended up with extensive legal trouble and eventually ended up um, me being in jail. Like Jonah uh, was in the belly of a fish for three days, I was also in jail for three days. And uh, it was, but it felt like an eternity. And it, um, while I was there, I realized that that wasn't the place for me and that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, but I knew that my own decisions had took me there, but I needed God's help. Um, when I got out, I, you know, I, I talked to my mom, I talked to my family, and I realized that I needed to get my life right with Jesus. And I, I got saved, I got baptized, I started doing devotionals, I tried to you know, follow his word, and it really, changed my life but now I want the I want the my life to be about bringing light to people that might feel like I did and how I felt was after all that was said and done I felt like I was too far gone and I just wasn't good enough for for everything I've done not further from the truth. Um, I want my story to be able to help people and let them know that God's grace is huge. And if he can help somebody like me in the situation that I was in become what, what I've become since then, it's, it's possible. No matter how low you are, no matter how high you are, God, his grace is there. And he uses those terrible situations, just like Jonah was in, just like I was in, to, to let that be a catalyst for the change in your life, even though it might be the hardest thing you've ever done. Thank you. Man, I'm so thankful to Matthew for sharing his story with us. Um, getting to know the guy it's 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 a, a really beautiful story i wanted you to see a story because i didn't want god's mercy just to be a bible character on a page or a preacher who gets excited i want it to be a person with skin on just like the skin you have a person who lives life every day just like you and matthew said something there he said god can use these absolute messes he, he said in his video right 
it was my choices that took me to this place of being in jail, legal trouble, all this kind of stuff. My choices took me there, and yet God will use those kind of moments as catalysts for changing your life. The question for us is, will we partner with God in Him using our hardships as catalysts for change? Jonah ultimately did not. Matthew ultimately has. Today, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment after I pray. I don't know how you need to respond today, but I would just beg you with my whole entire soul, please respond to God in sincerity. Please don't just stand and hum your way through a song because that's what we do at the end. If you need to sit and pray, if you need to grab a friend and say, please pray with me, I feel like I'm in distress. If you need to find a quiet corner somewhere and journal down some thoughts and take with you, if you need to say to a friend, this is my commitment to what I will do and worship when I leave this place. This is my commitment. I need your help to walk in that. Whatever you need to do, you may need to stand and sing your lungs out. As long as it's orderly and honoring of God, I could not care less about what our response looks and sounds like. But man, I really hope that we sincerely respond to our God who is rich in mercy and who doles it out fiercely. Let's pray. God, I've said so much. I pray, God, you would let any and all that's not useful fall away. And I pray that you would let a clear picture of your kind mercy, your strong mercy, grip our souls in this room today. God, and I pray just really simply that you would lead us individually, collectively, and what it looks like for us right now to worship you. to accept our spiritual distress, to embrace our dependence by crying out to you. God, in hopes that we would praise you for your deliverance, would you move in us, God? Would you lead us now?